It was a summer day in 2014 when Nancy and Kim found out they could get married. I said, you want to get married? And she said, what do you know? I said, we can do it. We can get married today if we want to. We can get married in Indiana. And then I'd love to. But I said, but you have a this lunch? Was, this was noon. I had a lunch and she had a meeting. <laughs> I had a so, meeting? So we said, okay, so let's meet back here at 3. And, and she was late. And I was a little late. I mean, seriously. Stories of love and citizenship with the Just Married podcast. Today on Interstates, right after this. When I first aired this episode last February, I said it might be hard to remember these days how much of a struggle it was to gain popular support for same-sex marriage. For a lot of us, it seems like a pretty solid part of our society, legally and culturally. But, you know, a lot of people thought that about abortion, too. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a separate opinion from the majority. He said the same logic that led to overturning Roe also applied to the cases establishing rights to contraception, same-sex sexual activity, and same-sex marriage. As I record this, the day after Election Day, it looks like Republicans are going to take the House. And that means legislation protecting those rights is pretty unlikely. And yet, it's worth remembering how hard it is to predict the outcome of a struggle like this and how many small actions it involves. Just as one example, think about the past few decades, how many people came out, which meant more and more straight Americans realized they knew people with same-sex partners who wanted to get married. Friends, neighbors, co-workers, family. Same-sex partnership became normalized. Not that there's not still discrimination, even with the law on your side for now. So, last February, I brought in Jennifer Bass to talk about all that, to help us remember the history through a series of stories. Jennifer's been working on an oral history project of same-sex marriage, and she's produced a podcast called Just Married, based on those interviews. I asked her to start by saying how she got into the project. So the project started as a research project with the idea of, you know, how has same-sex marriage equality affected people who've gotten married in the last decade, and also just creating this archive so that you can really understand it was a phenomenon. It wasn't taken for granted in those days. So that's how the project got started. There's more to be said about the bigger picture how the interviews affected Jennifer, what surprised her, and what this project might offer in our current political moment. But before we get to that, let's get into some of the stories. The first episode is called Two Days in June. Mm -hmm. What was significant about those two days? In January of 2014, Indiana, for a brief moment, allowed people to get married who were of the same sex. And that was because a federal judge had allowed that to happen, but it was immediately stopped by then-Governor Mike Pence. So it was a phenomenal moment, and we just thought it would be great to capture um, the memories of people who had participated in that. So we have a couple, a few couples who are part of that telling their stories. Marriage equality arrived in Indiana on a summer day in 2014. A federal judge ruled on June 25th that the state ban on gay marriage was unconstitutional. Couples who had been denied the right to marry for their whole lives rushed to county courthouses to make it legal. Two days later, to no one's surprise, Governor Mike Pence appealed the decision, sending it back to the courts and halting new marriages. This is the story of those two days in Indiana when gay and lesbian couples could marry for the first time. Nancy Kalina and Kim Davis were among the many same-sex couples waiting to see what the courts would do. I think we told people that we were waiting to do it in Indiana, and people laughed at us. They were like, oh, yeah, right. Like, that's not like, that's that's going to happen. We're like, it will. <laughs> it will. Kim was leaving her class at the Y when she heard that the ban had been lifted. So I came home, and she said, what do you know? And I said, do no, you said. I said, do you want to get married? And she said, what do you know? I said, we can do it. We can get married today if we want to. We can get married in Indiana. And then I'd love to. But I said, but you have a this lunch. Was, this was noon. I had a lunch and she had a meeting. 
<laughs> I had a so, meeting for So we said, okay, so let's meet back here at three. And, and she was late. And I was a little late. I mean, seriously. Kim and Nancy weren't really sure how to get married, but they took off for the courthouse. As they rounded the corner of the county building, they saw their minister out on the steps. I am Marianne Macklin, and I'm the senior minister here at the Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, the couple came around the corner in the car and were hanging out the window, you know, yelling at me, We're coming! This was not a typical day at the Justice Building. The guard at the metal detector warmly welcomed the couples. Judges were coming out of their chambers, offering to officiate. It was getting pretty close to closing time. The steps were filled with people who were getting married, serving as witnesses, playing music, giving out flowers. Kim and Nancy thought they'd just get a license and maybe do the marriage later. So we're like running to get in there. And they and said, then we were telling Marianne, we're just getting the license. And she, and she said, no, she no, said no, 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 just do it. She says, just do it. She says, you don't know how long this is going to last. And so we filled out the forms. We here had to decide who was going to be Mr. and who was going to yeah, be Mrs. Yeah, because the forms didn't didn't say, they said bride and groom. They didn't right. say person and what, person or whatever. Yeah, what do so, you want to be? Yeah, <laughs> you were the groom, I guess. Jean Kapler was deeply involved with marriage equality fight in Indiana. She and her partner, Jenny Austin, got together about 20 years ago. They were actually in the process of planning a wedding in Illinois when the news hit that couples could marry in Indiana. I had just finished up with clients that day. I was at Blooming Foods, and Kathleen's husband, John, texted me about the decision. So I'm standing in the middle of Blooming Foods crying, texting Jenny, saying we can get married. Like Kim and Nancy, they also had a busy day and decided to wait till the next morning. Jenny tells the story. So we got up early because we wanted to be sure that we got there as soon as they opened. Um, because I get kind of anxious in crowds. It was kind of like, boy, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of people here. Boy, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> Let's get it done. Just yeah. walking through the courthouse door had an effect on Jean. I remember walking through that door and what it felt like because, you know, we, we could have walked through it before, but we couldn't have done this. Under all the excitement was the possibility that the court would issue a stay and halt the marriages until the case could be decided at the next level, in this case, the Supreme Court. Clerk Nicole Brown at the Monroe County Clerk's Office knew this was likely. We did not leave that day until any couple who was standing in line was married because, again, we knew there was a stay coming. We didn't know how long that would last. Uh, we had ministers who came out and stood on the front steps of the Justice Building and married people. As for that minister, Reverend Marianne Macklin, her day also started out like any other. Then her phone lit up with texts that the ban had been lifted. She grabbed her stole and rushed off to the courthouse. I walked in. I, I went back to where everybody was waiting at the clerk's office, and I walked in. And I said, "Hey, anybody need a minister?" And everybody started laughing, and then they all went, "Yes." It was such a joyful day, just incredible. Reverend Macklin herself was not able to marry in her home state. She and her partner held a commitment ceremony in 1992. They married in Vermont in 2010 when it became one of the first states to legalize gay marriage. I've done over 500 weddings. And I've been also been doing commitment ceremonies for people who cannot uh, legally marry. And at that point, I was saying, and by the power vested in me, according the to the laws of the state of Indiana. And every time I said that, it just, it was I just like, we never thought we would hear this, be this, experience this in our lifetime. Then indeed, the court ordered this stay and the door slammed shut. So are like, we or what, are we? Are we or aren't we? I mean, like, that was the, I mean, because no one was could answer that. In October, the court lifted the stay and gay marriage effectively became just marriage in Indiana. I felt like I could exhale. <laughs> Those years of wanting to be married but not being able to was kind of like holding my breath. And to just, ha, huh, I'm married to the woman that I love that I want to be married to. In Bloomington, Indiana, over 70 same-sex couples share the same wedding anniversary. A story 
just moments ago, the Supreme Court and this landmark... The next summer, the Supreme Court decided that marriage was a right for all Americans. Case closed across the country, left the wedding bells ring. That was Just Married, Two Days in June, produced by my guest, Jennifer Bass. Aside from that first episode, Just Married focuses on the stories of individual couples. Most of the couples Jennifer interviewed had been together for a long time, like decades. And you think about how you have to be so intentional to continue your relationship without some of those legal trappings that many of us have taken for granted in our lives. And why would you choose to get married after all those years anyhow? But it was really intense and really amazing. And almost everyone, when I would ask the question, did you feel any differently after you got married? I mean, these are people who have been together 30 years. And I rarely had a no, it was the same. It was almost always, it really struck me. And I felt like I belonged. And, you know, different things like that, like I was part of this world. I was part of the society like I hadn't been before. I, maybe they hadn't even realized that they felt different. But it was, um, it was very moving in that way. And it wasn't just about long-term couples who were finally tying the knot. Jennifer also felt like she'd already heard about same-sex couples on the coasts and in big cities. She hadn't heard as much about same-sex marriage in the heartland. You know, some of the experiences of people right here in Indiana and southern Indiana especially um, had not been told. And, um, you know, we could talk about Judy and Lucy, for instance. You know, Judy is in Spencer, Indiana. She was in Indianapolis and really did not have much of a community and was not out because if she'd been out, she could have lost. She and Beverly could have lost Beverly's child in that experience. I mean, the, the laws, you just cannot believe what, what the laws were in those days. And so they were very much closeted. But to hear her story of their love and their relationship and getting to the point where they could actually get married was is pretty amazing. And then Beverly died. I actually had not met Beverly. And so Judy's interview starts off with just Judy and then there's a little change in there, so keep listening. Yes, keep listening, especially since we're going to take a short break before we hear about Judy in Spencer, Indiana. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. This week, we're talking with Jennifer Bass about a podcast she produced. It's called Just Married, a podcast about love and citizenship in the decade of marriage equality. We're about to hear the story of Judy in Spencer, Indiana. Judy Epp was just out of high school when she settled down with her first girlfriend, Phyllis. It was the late 1960s in Indianapolis, Indiana. Phyllis was 10 years older than Judy and had two children. They led a secret life, even secret from the children they were raising. We were so fearful that if we talked openly to them and they talked to somebody else and then here comes somebody to snatch the children away. It was a very, very real fear at the time. And we all could have lost our jobs. Phyllis died when Judy was just 26. The children were 18 and the family dissolved. In steps Beverly. And Beverly and I had already known each other. In fact, we had run in the same circles, the four of us, she and her girlfriend and, and me and my um, partner, wife at the time, ran around together. Beverly and her girlfriend broke up, and so it was just kind of a natural progression we got together. Judy and Bev made a life for themselves, eventually retiring and moving to their lake cottage in Spencer, Indiana. They traveled, raised a handful of dogs, and kept a low profile in their small-town community. But then everything changed, at least for Judy. We were in the living room watching TV, and there was a report about Hawaii, and um, the organization or the people or whoever had asked to get married, and they were denied. And um, I remember distinctly looking at Beverly and saying, you know, I never thought we would get married. I never would have 
been the one to ask could we get married but now that somebody asked and they were denied it's really pissing me off (laughs) we're gonna have to get married so and i'm gonna have to work to make this a reality and so she's like okay fine i chose canada because at the time there were a few states where you could get married but not many and some of them had restrictions like you get your license one day and you wait two days and you get married and so on and I had a, th- a theory, a feeling, which didn't turn out to be the case, but I thought maybe if we get married in another country, would we, we would be accepted quicker than if we got married in one state. Canada, interestingly enough, we went to Niagara Falls, and you can get married the same day you get your license. But if you want to get divorced, you have to live there for a year. So I thought, okay, this is good. <laughs> We're good with this because we got married to celebrate our 30-year anniversary. So, yeah, we don't have to live in Canada. In January, they celebrated their wedding at the Unitarian Church, surrounded by their kin and their chosen Spencer Pride family. Judy wore a red strapless dress. Bev wore black jeans, a black wool jacket, a white shirt, red vest, and black cowboy boots. They vowed to love and care for each other, as they had for 30 years, till death do us part. At the time of the ceremony, when, when you're pronounced legal, there's just something about that, and it's really hard to describe, but... You can be anywhere in the world and tell people you're married, and everybody knows what that means. You're married, you're married, everywhere, all over the world. I I remember when I first started years ago, digressing a little bit, I started with a new nail technician, and we were having conversation, and I said something about my partner, before we were married, of course, and she asked me what business we were in. So therein lies the problem. (laughs) Well, the business of love, actually, but um, she was a little embarrassed because that is what I said. Um, But but I don't have to, I didn't have to say that after we got married. After the wedding, Judy dove into political work around marriage equality and helping to develop the Spencer Pride organization. Beverly stayed out of the fray. She was not a joiner. She was not an activist. She was a stay-at-home with the animals. Ten years after she and Judy were married, Beverly died in their home in Spencer. Judy was heartbroken as she said, No one will ever love me like that again. But wait, that's not the end of the story. Life deals you things, and you have to make do with what happens and go forward. Enter Lucy, a wave of fresh northern wind blowing down through Canada. Her partner Susan died just three months after Beverly, and she, like Judy, sought comfort and support through a gay widow's website. They were part of an online community helping each other deal with grief and loss like only those who are going through it can do. She had posted something on the list, uh, the the widower's list, and I thought, oh, she's really hurting. Yeah. It came through, and I hit the the thing to to call her, and she answered. And I said, how you doing? And I I read the post. Are you you doing all right? No. And, And... she said, I don't know. I said, we'd like to talk about it. She goes, mm, she's not really wanting, I don't feel like really talking. And she talked for like two hours. <laughs> we did wind up talking, 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 talking. I let her unload. So we talked off and on. And I was on the road. The condo was sold, went on the road into the States. My journey, my own trail of tears. So Lucy was going back to Canada. Yes. And on her way, she said, I'd like to come through Indiana and have dinner and and meet in person. And I said, okay, that's fine. So she came through Indiana. We met up in at a truck stop in Indy and then went to a restaurant and had dinner and was just a friendly meeting. And yeah. that was in May. 23rd. 
the memory is incredible. So then in October, Spencer Pride went to a um, conference in um, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And my geography skills are nil. And so I knew Lucy was in Canada somewhere. <laughs> so and she I said, said, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. And I said, you're going to be in New Brunswick? She said, no, but... Saskatchewan, I said, that's like 1,800 miles from here. So by the time she came there, we kind of knew something was going to happen. Yes. <laughs> I'm a goner. If this goes good, I am so gone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was thinking no such thing. <laughs> it's like, keep over there. I said repeatedly after Beverly died, I couldn't imagine ever being with anybody else 40 years. So this just kind of happened, which is the best way anyway. And I wasn't looking either. Lucy was a goner, and Judy was open to letting her into her life. When we first started moving from friends to this might be turning into something, she said, you know, if this is going to work, we have to talk about everything. <laughs> yes. Crap. <laughs> so we proceeded to talk about everything. So I heard all these stories of her young life. and, and Which she, I, I asked if it was all right or right. bothered her. She said, no, 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 go ahead. So, I loved hearing the stories about her childhood and her young adulthood. For one thing, because it was so joyful. She had such a good childhood and a happy family and and such a good time as a young lesbian and so I was almost kind of vicariously reliving my childhood through her. Her first visit to Spencer meant the Inquisition, a test of Lucy's intentions and worthiness among Judy's chosen family in Spencer. She sailed through it. On Christmas Day they announced their engagement from a condo in Key West. The weddings in March in Spencer. So Lucy will wear a button with Beverly's picture on it, and I'll wear a button with Susan's picture on it, which was her late wife. So when I'm looking at Lucy, I'll be looking at Beverly, and she'll be looking at Susan when she's looking at me, because to us, they are part of this relationship. I had 40 years with Beverly. She had 17 with Susan. There's not much we can talk about in our past that doesn't include them. So they're part of our relationship. And actually, we met on a widow's Facebook page, a gay widow's Facebook page. So we wouldn't even know each other if it hadn't been for them. Judy just, she, she is actually my twin flame. Susan was my life soulmate, but Judy is my twin flame, and there's a difference. I, I'm sure I remember telling you and seeing it, nobody will ever love me like that again. And that's not true because Lucy does love me like that. That was Judy and Lucy on the Just Married podcast, produced by Jennifer Bass. For people like Judy and Lucy, who spent decades with their partners before they could get married, or even just be out, marriage equality must have felt like a long time coming. But as I said at the beginning, public opinion changed pretty fast. As Jennifer says, there was a tipping point. And I can't tell you what that tipping point was, but state by state, it was happening. And then there was a tsunami. It just kaboom. And we um, actually, the head of Freedom to Marry, Evan Wolfson, was here in Bloomington, I think maybe in 2013. And... You know, I remember his comment, like, do you think it'll ever happen in the Supreme Court? And he said, we just need five. We just need five, meaning five of the justices. But he didn't really. I don't think anybody expected it to happen that fast. But what's interesting was the Supreme Court decision was decided on the basis of four plaintiffs, four cases, and they were all from the Midwest. So it was Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan. So isn't that interesting? It is interesting. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. So the, you know, the early adopters were 
like you said, Massachusetts and Vermont, New York and Hawaii and even Iowa was an early Hmm. adopter. But then it just kind of went full steam ahead. And yeah, even Indiana wasn't the last one. (laughs) Good for us. I mean, it's interesting to think of the Midwest being part of that tipping point, being the center of the country, both geographically and maybe politically. But when we think about the Midwest, I think it's important to remember that we're not just isolated between the coasts. There are all kinds of communities here that are connected to every part of the globe. Which brings us to Yusuf and Salil. So I wanted to record Yusuf and Salil because we're talking about the Midwest and we're talking about same-sex marriage in America and in the Midwest. But the Midwest is not just one kind of person who grew up in, you know, rural America. The Midwest, and especially when you're in a college town, are all kinds of people from all over the world. So here we had a couple, one from India and one from Bangladesh, and they met in this country. And wow, what a great thing. And so their story is you know, just a different a different view of of a kind of a newer relationship. They're a little bit younger, but suddenly they had this opportunity as well. And what that meant for them and their family is is, I think, pretty wonderful. Salil and Yusuf met on the first day of orientation at Miami University. They were both starting a graduate program in neuroscience, two of five graduate students, and both Indian. You would think it would be instant friendship. We met on a day of orientation, and he thought I was the most arrogant person in the world. So <laughs> He was! Everyone said hello, and he wouldn't say hello. And I was like, wow, why would you do that? And then I called my mom. I was like, there's this guy from Bangladesh, and he wouldn't say hello. And it's funny, my mom said, but Bangladesh is so poor. Why would he not say hello to a fellow Indian? (laughs) I don't think think that uh, makes sense, but he should have said hello. (laughs) Salil is close to his mom. He calls her regularly. She couldn't understand why someone from a poorer country than India would be snobby about meeting another Indian, but she didn't quite have the whole picture. Yusuf would be the first to admit that he was raised with an eye to social status, Why would he, an outgoing, fun-loving, brilliant scientist, travel across continents and countries to befriend another Indian? That was August. By November, they'd become friends, and then the weather had its way, as it does in romantic stories everywhere. It happened, I think, on a tropical storm. There was a tropical storm, and he could not go home, so, yeah, we... So I stayed back. And, and the rest was history. Things happened. <laughs> things happened. Nobody knew about us. I mean, I mean, people would have their speculations, but we were not out. We were not out openly. But to add to that, maybe it wasn't his first relationship, but he was my first relationship. So we graduated, and he moved to UPenn, and I moved to UCLA. And we were committed to each other. But I told Yusuf, I don't know how this is going to happen because my parents are like, you know, whenever I go back and my parents were um, time to get married and time to get settled. And I told Yusuf, Yusuf, I don't know how I'm going to come out to my parents, but one thing is very sure. I'm not going to get married, even if I have to stay single. Married in the sense, married to a girl. I was like, I'm never going to ruin someone's life. But then one day he called me and he was crying. I was like, what happened? And he said like, you know, I got cancer and I'm gonna die. So you should move out, get a better life for yourself. And I was like, calm down, calm down. What happened? Like, you know, tell me in detail. So um, I was stubborn. I didn't want him to come down. I didn't want anyone to come down. I didn't tell my parents because I was really angry with life in general. So I went for four rounds of chemo, everything got treated, so it it changed my perspective in life. It changed Salil too. He really wanted to talk to family. He called his mom, but she was with friends and couldn't talk. I don't know what happened. I was like, I have to talk to someone. So I called my dad. I was sobbing and he was like, what happened? And I was like, you know, you know about Yusuf. I mean, they knew about him. They knew him, like, you know, that Yusuf is Salil's best friend. 
I was like, you know, you have got cancer and this and that. And he said, no, it's, everything is going to be okay, this. And then I was like, Papa, I'm gay. And you know, he said, that's okay, that's okay. And I was like, wow, you know, we never talked about this. And my dad, he said, oh, it's your choice, but don't tell anyone because we still have to live in this society. You have to live in that society. I mean, I have to live in the society. It's not like, you know, America is the best place for, place for gay people or, you know, everything is rosy here. Then, you know, my mom called me that night and she said, what's going on? And she was angry too. I told her clearly, I'm gay and I'm not ashamed of it. I just like, you know, I had a moment because, you know, Yusuf got cancer and I love him. But if you think that there's anything wrong with it, then, you know, it's your problem. I mean, you can go ahead with your life and I can go ahead with my life. Like who I am, who I am, I'm dealing with it. If you can support me, great. But if not, then let's just move on. As their commitment to each other grew stronger, Yusuf also thought it might be time to come out to his family. I decided to tell my uh, brother first because he's very close to me. And I called him and uh, I didn't realize uh, it would be that emotional, but it was. And I could not stop crying. And he was fine when we were talking, but uh, he's like, okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And the next day when he called me, he, was, he had a lot of questions. And then all of a sudden he stopped calling. So he told my parents that I, I'm a changed person. And so he doesn't feel comfortable talking to me. Um, so I went back three times to tell my parents, but I was stopped by my brother or someone. After a few years apart, the couple moved to Indiana, where they both had work at Indiana University. Mike Pence was the governor, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was in full swing. The first thing we moved, moved here was, uh, they were having a protest right outside the courthouse here in Bloomington yeah. for the, the Freedom Religious Act. Freedom Act. Yes. I saw this huge line of people, and I'm like, oh my god, this is so early in the morning, and people are like standing outside Kilroy's, so Kilroy's is a bar. I was like, my god, this is really a college town, like students get drunk so early in the morning, and then we found out this was a protest for against the religious freedom right, and I was like, wow. Yeah. And when gay marriage was legalized, he really wanted to get married. I didn't want to get married, but I wanted to be engaged, I wanted a nice ring. And some people that determines the relationship. <laughs> so year before, I'd gone to India, and my mom was just like, you know, she was arranging her closet, and she sees her wedding outfit. So it's a sari, right? It's a beautiful sari in gold, and and I don't know. Her eyes kind of like you know welled up, and I'm like, what's what's wrong? And she said, like, why don't you take this with you? I was like, oh my god, mom, this is like so heavy. It's like easily like a few kilos and like, you know, I can't take so much luggage. And I don't know why she wanted to give that to me. And I was like, fine, I'll take it, you know. I don't know what to do with it. Maybe I can make a nice tablecloth out of it. Or, like, you know, <laughs> or, or, or curtains or like, you know, little dresses for my dogs. And I was like, and it was sitting in my suitcase. And then when we were getting married, we used that sari and, and we hung it there. It was just like there, but it was so beautiful. It's like, you know, wow, maybe this is a presence in my wedding. I never thought it would be a reality. No. Yeah, me neither. No. I mean, I, when, I was when I was dating him, everything was okay, but I never thought I would get married. Salil and Yusuf moved to Chicago a few years ago, and I called recently for an update. I was surprised to hear that they had a visitor. So what happened with Salil's mom? Did she ever come to visit? Oh, she's, she's here. here right now. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. You know, yeah, the second year, visit. What I love about her is she's just such a warm, nice person. It's not even about accepting me, but it's or us, but it's she just made it feel so normal, uh, treating me like her other son. I came out after we got married and they completely uh, were shattered and sent me a long email saying that I was wrong and this is the wrong way of life. How the society reacts and what the society feels, what her friends would feel is more important. We both feel so blessed to have careers that we love and friends who are so supportive. This sense of belonging finally is settling in. I just hope Yusuf's family, immediate family, becomes more receptive and then life would be ideal, perfect. I have a very little bit of hope that maybe, you know, um, when you go through things in life, you evolve. So that little bit of hope is still there that she would be accepting one day. That was Salil and Yusuf on the Just Married podcast here on Interstates from WFIU. When we come back, we'll hear from Jamie and Donna. Their story involves a mobility scooter, a high-speed car chase, and planning a wedding in 36 hours. Not in that order. We'll be right back. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to stories of love and citizenship in the heartland on the Just Married podcast. Jennifer Bass produced it, and she's going to introduce our final story. So I met... Jamie and Donna at the Spencer Pride Festival. They were at a booth for the church that they belong to. And it's a very inclusive community in Bloomington, actually. They live in Bedford, but they come up to Bloomington to go to this church. And I met Jamie, and we started talking, and They agreed to be interviewed. She and Donna were working at this event with their son. And I was just impressed that here was this couple from Bedford, which is a small town in rural Indiana and not known for being the most progressive place in the country. But like everywhere, there are wonderful stories to be told. Here's the story of Jamie and Donna, narrated by Jonah Chester. In 2014, several legal cases and a series of overturned and then reinstated rulings opened up a brief window of a few days in June when same-sex couples could legally marry in the state of Indiana. This was nearly a year before the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage nationwide. During this window, couples across the state rushed to tie the knot. Few of them had to do so while riding around on a mobility scooter, however. So I was on a, they call them a knee walker, where it's like a giant scooter for adults. In the spring of 2014, a few months before the initial ruling that allowed gay marriage in the state, Jamie had shattered her ankle and wound up partially immobilized. That did not stop her from getting married to her longtime partner, Donna. Love finds a way, even when you're short one usable leg. We did all this scurrying around trying to find something to get married in and get wedding rings and get a little bit of something for a reception and get everything hammered out. And here I am on my knee walker rolling all over southern Indiana trying to figure out how I'm going to get married. Donna and Jamie were one of only a few dozen same-sex couples who married in Lawrence County during the initial two-day window. The couple still lives in Bedford with their son, Jack. Um, The second we found out we could in Bedford, because what was that, that whole week, that first when it became legal in Indiana, yeah. the people in Bedford were like, well, we don't know how to fill out the marriage license. And when we live in Bedford, so we needed to get our license in Bedford. But when we heard that they figured out how to figure, fill out the marriage license, we are like, okay, let's go. <laughs> so we planned it. Like in 36 like, hours. In 36 hours. <laughs> well, I actually did propose. Because I didn't think she was going to get off her knee walker go to the courthouse with me. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I knew it was coming and everything. I just, it's kind of a bad pun, but I guess I was being a foot dragger. <laughs> well, when she said something about um, that they um, said that they figured out how to fill out the marriage license, she was sitting in her chair in the living room. So I just got down on my knee and grabbed her hand and said, 
Well, do you want to get married? I'm like, you're delirious. <laughs> yes, that's what she said. After the heartwarming and romantic proposal and the hectic dash to the county courthouse for a marriage license, the couple now had to plan the actual wedding. It was modest, and they opted for a small chapel instead of a larger church. There were a couple issues on the day of the wedding, however. I'll let Jamie explain. So my dad was like the last person to get here. So once dad got here and I got him in the chapel, then we came in and went down the aisle and I'm on my granny walker and it took so long. So somebody starts singing, we're going to the chapel and we're going to get married. (laughs) And I'm going, clunk, 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 (laughs) down the aisle. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. No one's singing for you. So the longer I stood up there, the more the sweat was just rolling off of me. I was drenched, and after a while, my legs started shaking because I was just in excruciating pain. And I'm like, wrap it up, wrap it up. And then everybody's like dabbing their eyes and everything. And Jack, our son, Jack notices that people are crying and he starts to get emotional so then you know the ceremony is largely over and he just comes running up to us and just hugs us and hugs and just sobs he just cries his eyes out and everybody's thinking well there's something wrong there's something wrong i'm like no he's fine he's just you know feeling the moment and and he was he was just fine and he was probably tired from being at boy scout camp all week I kept telling Jack, I said, Jack, the only thing that's different now is it's going to take an attorney to get rid of her. (laughs) And her friend Ellen overheard me say that, and she goes, oh, so romantic. You said it's going to take an eternity to get rid of her. (laughs) And I correct her, I'm like, no, that's not what she said. Jamie and Donna acknowledged the stereotypes about Southern Indiana. But in spite of those stereotypes, the couple was greeted with nothing but warm and loving support the day they went to get their marriage license. So when we went to the courthouse to get our marriage license, all my experience at the Times Mail, the newspaper in Bedford, they're all like, Jamie, we wondered if you were coming in. And see, I'm, I know a lot of gay people in this area think, You know, Lawrence Countyans are a bunch of knuckle-dragging mouth breathers. But those girls in there could not have been sweeter to us. And they, you know, were genuinely pleased that I had managed to make it in there. And so it was, that was really nice that they were so happy to see us. Jamie and Donna have never been shy about their relationship. They never describe each other as friends to avoid criticisms or bigotry from others. As Jamie puts it, I don't do things like that with my friends. By being open and honest about their relationship, Jamie and Donna began to attract and meet other LGBTQ couples in the area. Now, the couple is part of a growing community in Lawrence County. Yeah, there there was, like I said, I was was like 23 years old before I even knew another gay person. Um, As far as growing up in the gay community, no. There was nothing like that. Um... When we moved back to Bedford, it was so funny. Bedford is a pretty small place. And we were at the store, and I saw one of my high school classmates at the store, and she was with this other woman, and they kept giving us the side eye. I'm like, what is all that about? So we get home, and everybody still had landlines, and our phone's ringing, and they're like, hey, this is Jana and Chris. Um, We were wondering, would you guys like to come over and play euchre one night? And I'm like, Ching. <laughs> I think we would. Sometimes, however, finding members of the LGBTQ community in a rural area is not as easy and straightforward as bumping into them in the grocery store. Sometimes, it involves high-speed car chases. You know, we're, we're old. <laughs> I see these young girls here. We're old. We didn't have uh, Facebook and cell phones and stuff. 
When I was at uh, at the Tom's Mill, I got in the habit of parking on a certain, certain place. And every day I would see this girl drive by in her car with her rainbow vanity plate. And she'd just smile and wave at me. And I'd smile and wave and go into work. And I'm like, hmm. And then I noticed I didn't see my friend in the car anymore. And then I saw a new girl in a little uh, mint-colored Suzuki sidekick. And she'd just smile and wave at me. And I never made the connection because I'm a dunderhead. But it was the same girl. So one day I was driving along on 16th Street and I didn't have anywhere to go and I didn't have anywhere to be. And there's a mint-colored Suzuki sidekick pulls up a song. I mean, I'm like, that's it. It's on like Donkey Kong. So I took off down 16th Street after this woman. <laughs> I mean, I'm like... <laughs> so finally she pulls into the old Stone City Mall parking lot and I throw it in park and I jump out of my car and I'm like, hey, I want to talk to you. And she's like, hey, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I'm like, where are you headed? She's like, I'm going to go get my nails did. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go get my nails did, but give me your phone number and we'll, you know, we'll hook up later on. She's like, okay. So, I mean, so we've been friends ever since then, um, through ups and downs. She, she and her partner have split and they're with new partners now and everything. And so you just have to, if you don't have a community, you need to form a community. Whether it's skulking through the grocery store or chasing somebody down 16th Street, you know, communities where you find it. I see sorrow, trouble in this land. That was Jamie and Donna on the Just Married podcast. Their story, really all these stories, but Jamie and Donna's story in particular, really shows the importance of community and personal connection, especially in rural Indiana before that landmark ruling in 2014. Right. Well, you know, a few years before that happened, there were bills in the state house to have an amendment against gay marriage. It was unreal. And I think one of the big tipping points, I hate to say it, was not just, well, it wasn't just businesses, okay, because business had a lot to do with it because the big corporations, you know, found that they weren't able to get people to come and work for them who felt like they were being excluded. So that was one thing. But I think really it's a person-to-person thing. When your child or your niece or nephew or your neighbor identifies themselves to you and invites you to their wedding and you've never really been behind this idea that there should be anything other than opposite-sex people getting married and you see what a great couple these people are and why shouldn't they have the same right that we have? I think it was really that kind of personal experience that changed people's hearts and minds. And thank God for that. Are there any lessons that we can glean from that process for what we are experiencing now in other realms of our political situation? Oh, yeah. You know, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of talking to people who didn't agree with you. There was a lot of storytelling. And I think, like I said, I feel it very strongly that making those emotional connections and personal connections is what changes things for people. And that's what we have to do in our life today is find ways to find Little is, little issues, little places where we can connect with people who we may not agree with, but who basically agree in basic right to health and happiness, no matter who you are. So I think we can learn from that. Yeah, yeah. Nicely put. The Just Married podcast was produced by Jennifer Bass, with recordings from Allison Quantz's Radio Innovations class at Indiana University and Betsy Joes. Their music is from Gray Larson, Malcolm Doglish, and Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song is by Carrie Newcomer. Support for Just Married comes from Indiana University's Department of Gender Studies, the Office for the Vice President for Research New Frontiers Program, and the IU Bloomington Arts and Humanities Council. You can listen to more episodes at soundcloud.com slash marriageequalityheartland.
That's it for today's episode. You've been listening to Interstates. If you have a story for us, or if you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Jennifer Bass and everyone who helped bring Just Married to life. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. I want to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington, home of WFIU, is built, as well as the generations of workers who built it. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. been listening to metal recycling off the Beeline Trail in Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.